0: This is SPHERE, a podcast on the history and evolution of global environmental governance.
1: Hi, this is Eric Paglia from the research project SPHERE, Study of the Planetary-Human-Environment Relationship. On this episode of the SPHERE podcast, we'll be speaking with Associate Professor Sabina Höller, a member of the SPHERE team and head of the Division of History of Science, Technology and Environment at KTH Royal Institute of Technology, where the project is based. Sabina is a leading STS scholar and an expert on the evocative idea of spaceship Earth, which first emerged in the 1960s at the intersection of ecology, economics, architecture, and environmentalism. It later gave rise to ambitious experiments such as the infamous Biosphere 2 project in the Arizona desert and has gained new relevance in recent years with concepts such as the Anthropocene, Earth System Science, and Planetary Boundaries. Over the course of the next two episodes of this podcast, Sabina, who's the author of the 2017 book Spaceship Earth in the Environmental Age 1960-1990, to will explain the conceptual origins of Spaceship Earth, its connections to popular culture in the form of, for example, science fiction, and how the idea of Spaceship Earth continues to influence thinking on the relationship between humans and the planetary environment. First, here's Keith Foster, who conducted the interview with Sabina in Stockholm on November 27, 2020 that's right,
0: Eric. It was exciting to meet Sabina and delve into this rich subject that combines both science and cultural ideas. So her three interests of history of science, uh, science technology and environmental history somehow combined to uh, create this interest in this oh so fragile idea of spaceship Earth.
2: Yeah, this is how I understand it, uh, that this uh, figure of speech or metaphor, you could say, or image or symbol of spaceship Earth cannot be considered properly if you don't also take the techno science of that spaceship into account. So it's not entirely and only an environmental image. This is how I understood it when coming uh, to it from a history of science and technology perspective. Mm. So I wasn't an environmental historian from the start. I became one when I discovered that Spaceship Earth was a, a very prominent metaphor or image in the 1960s and 70s. So I became an environmental historian through my research mm. on uh, Spaceship Earth.
0: Those decades, the 60s and 70s, that's when the idea of pollution suddenly became really big and 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 people began to be worry in, in a new way about the environment because before there wasn't really much uh, thought or care about what we did to the environment so much. But then it suddenly became a hot potato in, in political terms.
2: Yeah, maybe it wasn't that sudden. So, of course, the environment also has a history uh, of, of humans uh, thinking about their environments. And then you have nature conservation and nature... Protection mm. That also goes back way uh, earlier, um, uh, way longer. But I would say that Spaceship Earth appeared at a time when the environment became an important issue for many people much more broadly than, uh, let's say, an elite of nature conservationists. So, as you said, pollution... Um, resource extraction and resource depletion was a big issue. And then population, population growth, mm. which might seem strange from today's perspective, as uh, world population has, again, at least doubled. Um, but it became a big issue in the well sixties, but also a bit earlier 50s. So post-World War II times, I would say. In that time period, the decade of the the space race, it also was, the Mm. 60s, the spaceship became a a prominent figure in in many ways. Well, for spaceflight itself. It became a reality. It became a reality. uh, And then for the environmental movement, but also for environmental science and ecology. So I thought it was interesting how these fields all connected uh, in this setting of the post-war years, the, the Cold War, the space race, the arms race, and the, the fledgling environmental consciousness and also really the environmental movement of environmental activism, of NIMBY, not in my backyard, activism and, and politics. The, 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 the beginning of what is environmental politics uh, that we know today, I would say, is basically the, the late 1960s. And from that time period stems spaceship Earth, and I wonder how many people remember that today. I often ask when I meet people, are you familiar with that term? And then they wonder, hmm, no, I don't think so. So I think it, it survives nowadays in very few pockets, perhaps Earth system science, pockets climate science, but not so much in the public consciousness. And, uh, and that's interesting in itself. And I think it also has to do with the space age being the, the decades of the, the, the 60s and then also early 70s a bit
0: can you see um, a return of that though because now it's not so much that old space race between the two superpowers anymore but now private and in, in entrepreneurs are getting into the idea of, of uh, getting into space Elon Musk uh, Richard Branson uh, so there's a new step being taken on on the idea with the idea of, of spaceships and leaving earth
2: indeed and that's this is interesting, I think, that after some decades, actually, of non-action or not much action in space, there's a return of an interest in moon and beyond Mars missions resource extraction-wise. That's one motive. But also, I think, again, the question is coming up of um, habitability in space, so space colonization. And this is something that was a rather big topic also in the 60s and 70s and 80s that I researched. Uh, But then there was a decline of interest, a waning interest. And now we see that coming back as well. So the idea of the spaceship, as I understand it from that time, was, of course, also to leave the Earth altogether. This was perhaps not what environmental activists or the, the counterculture of the time had in mind then mm. when they said spaceship earth they meant oh it's a very fragile planet that we 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 deal with mm. we need to be aware of it right it's the only place of life as we know it and the conditions of life are so fragile and vulnerable that we need to be very cautious with how we pollute and what kind of waste we create with what we consume what we extract so the spaceship was meant as a, a, f- a figure or a metaphor to, to point to that vulnerability and also to the community, the world community it, it needed to take care of uh, mm. the planet. But the other side of, of, of the spaceship is, of course, the, the, the techno-scientific, the technocratic even, a managerial view of what the planet is. Planet Earth as a spaceship also means that it's a, a technological system, in a way, mm. that one can manage and uh, steer and perhaps even optimize. So the the idea of, of our environment as a spaceship environment, as an interior that we, in a way, control ourselves, also comes, I would claim, from this, this figure of Spaceship Earth. And some of the, the, the legacies we still live with and the first and foremost, I think, is uh, the life support system that we consider of our environment being a life support system. And that isn't self-evident from my understanding as a science and technology studies scholar. Mm. I, I don't take that for granted. I would always question that. So why, how did we come to think of our environment being a life support system that supports life like a, uh, like a technological scientific system does. Well, I would claim that it comes from that intersection of space sciences, space ecology, ecology, environmental sciences of that time. Mm. So to think of the planet in these terms then also gives you tools to operate such a system, right? And, and, and that's then the third thing perhaps that, that the spaceship includes as an idea. It includes that we go elsewhere, so, I would claim that Spaceship Earth also always included to leave planet Earth altogether and go to another planet. And this is also what I think we can show as environmental historians as uh, what happened in then the 60s 70s and 80s what was happening in terms of the visions that people put forth but also what materialized in in, in terms of uh, ideas and projects uh, and perhaps what we see now with the mars missions is in a way an extension or a return to to these ideas mm. um, and it means not only taking humans but taking our environment with us right that's the the ultimate idea the,
0: the space arc
2: it would be it the will. space arc. It's an intergenerational arc of a, a, a spaceship that is really self-sustaining and uh, not sustained by by provisions from outside, but taking everything it needs with it mm. and also its environment to regrow or reproduce the conditions for life on the trip mm. uh, or on Mars then eventually. Right. So I, I think, from that perspective, spaceship Earth is 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 much more interesting than uh, uh, that metaphor for vulnerability or or community that it was first meant to be.
0: Hmm. There's a book and a radio series called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't know if you're familiar with it.
2: <laughs> I know the book.
0: <laughs> um, and there's one planet that is about to to be destroyed, so they have three spaceships uh, to to get rid of the population onto a new planet somewhere. So they send all the uh, thinkers and leaders on the first spaceship. On the third spaceship, they've got all the doers and achievers. And in the second spaceship, they have uh, people like uh, documentary filmmakers and hairdressers and telephone uh, sanitizers. And they say to them, we're going to send you off first. So whenever we get to that new planet, you can make sure there's a documentary made about it already when we get there. And so all all these people who are totally useless get sent (laughs) off first.
2: That's another interesting idea that we can come back to, of course, the question of of who can go, right, Um, which um, is perhaps also something that doesn't come at first sight when you think of spaceship Earth. Okay, here's this fragile planet, which we discovered as we went out into space and looked back. Basically, that was the moment, right? The the blue marble appeared, Mm. which is this iconic image of Earth in blue and white and brown and green, uh, sig- well, signifying these conditions of life that are so unique, but one very crucial element of Spaceship Earth is, of course, that it's limited. That the resources are limited. That it needs to be self-sufficient. It needs to be very efficient, also. And uh, the question is, how that can be composed in in an optimal way. Mm. So, Spaceship Earth isn't inclusive, necessarily. And this is something that I found very interesting. You mentioned the ark. You can think of other ships and what the ship in cultural history has meant. And uh, and it was always somehow self-contained. It's a nutshell, right? Everything is there in a nutshell. This is also why we think that ships are somehow so cozy, mm. right? We have everything Everything surrounds us in this small space. But, of course, the spaceship has its own selection mechanisms. The ark has its own as well. An arc is not inclusive either. We know that when we look at Genesis, right? So, uh, I mean, you have two of each kind, but then not every kind got on board, and sometimes there's uh, worthy and the unworthy. So all the, already there you see selection mechanisms, but it, it's, it's still a, a sort of encompassing idea of who gets to go on board. Mm. If you have a spaceship, it's a very functional life support system, as I said, and so only those could go that fulfilled some important function that I guess is part of what the story you were just telling like when who gets to go in on which ship and when mm. And and this kind of functionality uh, of composition, of optimal composition of, of that life support system, I uh, have argued is also uh, important uh, in, in the Spaceship Earth figure when you think of population and that whole issue of population growth uh, in the 60s and 70s when human ecologists also started to calculate, okay, how many? Mm-hmm. How many can go? How many people can the world support? And then... What is the optimum number of people our Earth can support? And if you have that, okay. So who who is worthy enough to stay on board, and who needs to go? Mm. And and so there were all kinds of reckonings and calculations uh, being made about worthy nations and fit nations that were fit enough to stay and those that were somehow irresponsibly were producing and eating up all the food reserves and so on and couldn't care for themselves, couldn't economize properly. And there were these discussions ongoing about giving them food aid or not and rather let, letting them starve. And, and here the, the ship imagery is really important. Um, it, it was the, the basis of this entire reasoning, right? OK, we're on a spaceship. It's fragile. Resources are limited. Um, who gets to share them, and in that sense, so all of that. This is why I found the spaceship so interesting because it, it leaves us room to think through these mechanisms and how they connect and uh, how, what they include and what they exclude. So, what who is dead weight on? So there's board an ethical the and a moral Absolutely. aspect to, to the Absolutely. discussion. Absolutely, and uh, when with uh, with uh, this overpopulation discussions by ecologists by population ecologists uh, in the 60s and 70s you can see it very clearly um, that life is then classified as worthy or unworthy or surplus or uh, well functional and and useful mm. and um, and and this is very disturbing I think and and uh, that's that's an aspect of spaceship earth we we also need to consider i think Um, and uh that's in a in a way very far from the counterculture idea of okay here we are doing subsistence economy and trying to live a a non-consumerist life and these 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 communities also used spaceship earth Mm. and were perhaps very far from ideas about population uh well, worthiness or surplus of life or obsolescence and who to discard and so on. But these discussions were there as well in the same time period.
0: Mm. It's it's whether you have an authoritarian decision-making process or or, or you can't really be democratic about something like that.
2: That's a bit of a paradox, I think, with Spaceship Earth that it somehow begs the question, who is the captain? (laughs) <laughs> there is no captain in a system that is self-contained and also self-sustained in a cybernetic system. That system controls itself, right? Mm. In in these feedback loops, there 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 is no one single authority that would control it all. But at the same time, of course, the spaceship is embedded in 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 the Cold War power conflict. It's about hegemony and and sovereignty of of nation states that are at the same time trying to come together in a in a in a like a world union of the United Nations. Mm. So it is also a a question, of course, uh, of uh, of, who gets to say, who who has a say in in who gets to live or who gets to die. And uh, you can see that in the in this in these uh, population ecology debates um, about the uh, for instance the US as being the superpower that gets to decide who gets aid, developmental aid, food aid, and so on. So, even though the spaceship is a cybernetic system, that doesn't really, strictly speaking, need a captain. Even um, where everyone is a passenger on on board of spa- of, of that spaceship, uh, you can also see the political conflicts and the fault sure. lines are in the in the international politics of the time.
0: Mm. Some passengers think they have more rights than other passengers.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> perhaps that's the. The hierarchy that we also need to be aware of uh, on every ship, mm. right? There's basically no ship without a hierarchy on board, right? And 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 we're very used to that when we think of whatever nineteenth-century vessels that exploration and go and uh, and it's very clear hierarchy on board, uh, and it wouldn't work without it, I guess. Um, but on the other hand, the spaceship when it was conceived in the 60s by politicians in the in this cold War setting and said well we need to look out for our planet a uh, nuclear disaster is imminent so we we need to build world community those were thinking of humans as being passengers all mm-hmm. to all together on that ship the good ship Earth is also in that sense very inclusive. So uh, the the question of who uh, has a right to more resources than other is then then uh, a question that that was being negotiated in among the crew in a way, mm. and uh, and one very striking image of the time also that is also a ship is then the lifeboat uh, and these lifeboat ethics you said the ethical questions and yeah they were also discussed in in these terms uh, of lifeboat ethics. That is, of course another selection mechanism if you think of the earth as a as a lifeboat, then the question of how you allocate resources mm. among the few that are passengers in a lifeboat that's really um a question of perhaps who has the best chances to survive, or would you go and draw lots? You could do that, but in a way, you always discard surplus weight or cargo, sure. right, uh, that is not somehow used There's useful.
0: always new, new movies come up every time you go into a new <laughs> point. Now I'm thinking <laughs> of the Titanic and, and who got on the lifeboats there and who didn't.
2: <laughs> so the, the lifeboat was also a, an, another ship that was around at the time that uh, went well together with the spaceship. So we have the, the lifeboat, we have the ark, we have the spaceship, and the spaceship is the one that is is most technologized i mm. would say so when we speak of an earth system or an environmental system or a life support system this is spaceship terminology because at the same time space the space sciences were of course busy trying to find ways to make a spaceship also self sustained mm. which it wasn't at the time right it couldn't it couldn't sustain astronauts longer than a couple of days basically
0: so the, that's what the situation was, and you've written a book about that time period from the sixties yeah, to the nineties. Uh, yeah,
2: it, it has the title "Spaceship Earth" also. So it's uh, it's about the, the paradoxes, perhaps also, and the controversies around um, this image of the of uh, the spaceship, of the the planet Earth as a spaceship.
0: Now we have this idea of how much we control the the interior of the spaceship. The, this anthropocene idea that um, Now humanity has so much control over its environment or the the natural environment. The balance has swung and now we have almost too much control. Does that affect the spaceship now that the crews or the passengers are more in control than they used to be?
2: I wonder whether they are, though. When I was working on this book, the Anthropocene discourse wasn't very established yet. It was... Uh, not really in my horizon coming to this topic from a history of science and technology perspective. And perhaps I would write it differently today with Anthropocene looming. So it it goes together very nicely in some aspects, but it's also different, I think, because the the, the spaceship we embraced, I think humans embraced this notion of the Earth as a fragile space capsule, where sufficiency and efficiency somehow need to combine to to survive. Mm -hmm. It was all about survival. And we abandoned this idea, I think. That's at least what I still would argue, seeing that many people don't know what the spaceship Earth is anymore. So at some point in the 80s, the spaceship was abandoned. Cybernetics collapsed in a way, this idea of this full control, um, new ideas of planetary like globalization replaced the spaceship idea. Well, the space age also waned, Mm. we can say, uh, for a while at least, um, with near orbital endeavors only, but there was no Mars mission. There wasn't even another moon mission, right? And and what we what we now have is the Anthropocene coming, I think, with mostly with climate, global climate change issues. And those were not necessarily on the agenda that I saw the contemporaries working with when I looked at the the sixties and seventies. they really were interested in pesticides, smog. Pollution, perhaps ocean dumping, population growth, uh, fossil fuel extraction, but like these very global abstract notions, like a changing climate, that you cannot even really see or feel in your backyard, right? That wasn't there at the time; it was on the horizon. And I think the Anthropocene is today very much about the sort of the the return of the consequences of these. These very slow and long-term processes of pollution and uh, carbon emissions. So we see these consequences now, but they weren't as immediate as many of the issues uh, in the '60s, uh, in the '50s, '60s, '70s, when the environmental movement formed.
0: Mm.
2: They were point; they could point to their toxic rivers, right? But the Anthropocene is about things that we hadn't even envisioned. That they would haunt us, I think, mm. I doubt that the spaceship fits the new problem setting right we wouldn't return to spaceship earth I think in this in the situation we're now in we we we're, we're trying to find new mechanisms or ideas or images that describe best yes. um the situation we're in nowadays. I wonder what, whether the 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 return to um a spaceship thinking and this like allegiate control humans have fits uh, the current setting. I think not because it shows that, I mean, as you said, humans are in, in, in some way responsible for the unintended consequences that we now see, mm-hmm. like sea level rise or, well, global warming, uh, toxic, well, whatever, radi- nuclear, like radiation uh, toxicity. But um, if, they were in control, it wouldn't be the problem that it is. I think that they're they're out of control. It's (laughs) both control
0: and lack of... Or we could have maybe proper control, but other other, uh, motivations get in the way. Right. It's
2: about power. You could say that humans are really a powerful, by now, geological force. This Mm. is how we discuss the Anthropocene. But they're also powerless um, because we don't have leverage in the way that the engineers of Spaceship Earth thought they had, right? Those that were thinking, okay, we can consider of our biosphere as, a, as an environmental life support system. And so we know what the cycles are of minerals and carbon, uh, the water cycles, fossil fuel combustion, and so on. And if, if we can steer that properly and turn the screws, then we can perhaps create an improved system i don't see that discussion right now it's uh much Do you think more...
0: that's a failure then in some respects because at some point humanity could have gone in that direction uh, and ha- and created a spaceship within it with a, 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 mm. a functioning system you that mean. was beneficial for for all of uh, humankind but instead it didn't happen and now I we're seeing we see are consequences of that.
2: I, um, yeah, maybe I'm too too pessimistic to um, think that this could have happened, that the spaceship idea, including all the species and the human species, in uh, perfect harmony, forever intergenerationally, would have worked. Mm. <laughs> and maybe I've seen too much ecocidal science fiction (laughs) during my work on this that is very pessimistic right it's always about ecological decline and uh, and humans uh, basically living uh, being left with a post-apocalyptic situation that they need to somehow clear up or clean up Mm. Um, so there are more dystopic narratives out there than very uh, utopian, mm. um, optimistic narrative. So I'm perhaps uh, also less inclined to uh, to even envision a, a situation where the spaceship community could have worked in the long run. But, uh, of course, there were ideas. I mean, I mentioned the UN, the United Nations. Those were, of course, meant to relieve the the post war post World War II, the devastation of of that that decade, mm-hmm. um, and to to restart on an international like a, a truly international level, and to go back to earlier attempts of uh, the Völkerbund, um, the League of Nations, and and to bring that back this kind of international negotiation and uh, decision making, but that kind of supranational Negotiation has, I think, still remained somewhat weak. It's not as strong as it, it could be if you think of the power of the nation states. Right. Right? They're still, I mean, up and running and very strong. And we see it now in COVID times also, how strong nation states can be uh, and, and basically overrule, override all kind of supranational Mm, decision governance. making even the european unions and uh, so i yeah i wonder i um
0: does that mean that this idea of global environmental governance has uh, a few flaws that, that that it's not it's not going to work unless we can get beyond that nation state uh, existence
2: that depends on what global environmental governance should mean if you mean by it that there is an an authority like the United Nations or like the European Union with the power to make global decisions, um, then perhaps that has failed. But um, I wonder whether there is an authority like that. I don't think there is any authority. Nation states haven't given that authority to anyone. So uh, I, I see global environmental governance rather operating on... on on different levels. So not as one single institution that would say, okay, these are the rules for the entire world or for our spaceship, but rather it's um, a a process that works through many, many local, well, bilateral, national, local, regional, international uh, institutions, agencies, single actors, NGOs, so in, it, it's much more messy than that, that. That one institution that is the captain of, of 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 spaceship Earth that would say, "Okay, this is this is the way to go," yeah. right? Uh, so we don't have that institution. I, I don't think we will ever have it. So global environmental governance—it's much more multi-level. Like you, you have actors uh, and and uh, relations on on many different levels, and they all work together to create something that is global environment in the first place that then is managed in so many ways. But of course, there are some tools that you could say are like, in operation more globally than others. Like if we create carbon trading mechanisms, just as an example for global climate change, right? So that is a, a mechanism. that You can also commit certain states to if they want to Exhaust, for instance. So you can create mechanisms that are more global than uh, whatever uh, local agendas, but they still conflict with local operation modes. So it's, it, I, I, I don't think that there's any one mechanism that commits all of the nation states of the world to, uh, to a particular rule. So in that sense, there was never a spaceship that we all inhabited together, right? And we don't have that. We, we still don't have it. No. It was a bit of a, a vision, uh, like a, um, a perhaps optimistic vision, but it, it was also, I think, uh, a, a very dystopic vision to be confined in a spaceship in that way as it was imagined uh, in, in the 60s. And... Um, yeah, I mean, perhaps we can be, be glad that we're not uh, confined in a system like that. Mm. Because there's also, in a way, more flexibility to think of oneself as, as being uh, an inhabitant of, of Earth and uh, not being part of a very, well, let's say, elite scientific technological system that was put up and put in place. Mm. We need to guard that also.
0: Yeah, we need to be on our guard. (laughs) Uh, Because many of these, uh, that sort of um, idea, they they often don't end up well. I mean, we had this uh, Biosphere Mm -hmm. 2 that was created.
2: Yeah, uh, I I have that in the book as well as an example. That's one of the sort of the materializations of the idea of the spaceship.
0: We should just remind uh, people listening maybe that Mm -hmm. don't know about that, that it was a a small group of scientists who were uh, encapsulated in this giant a model version of the world with with oceans and, and different uh, uh, environments from, from different parts of the world and uh, they were kept in there for a couple of years and it, right it, it that
2: was in the 80s and uh, they uh, a group of scientists of eight stayed in that facility for th- two years uh, locked in right and uh, it was an experiment it was also a human experiment like, because the, the experimental question was if and how these humans would be able to survive in a, in a closed environment that was built like a future Mars habitat. Mm. So the idea was explicitly to take a biosphere like that and move it to Mars and, and, and start a, a Mars colony. Um, And the reference to the spaceship was also very explicit when they said um, we should build um, a spaceship like the one we've been traveling on all along. So here comes the idea into practice. The the idea is put into practice that a spaceship is always on on a trip. It's not bound to a, a particular place. You can take it elsewhere. So spaceship Earth you can rebuild in miniature form once you have understood how the system works how the environmental system works. So you rebuild it in miniature form and then take it elsewhere. And uh, this elsewhere then for the time being was in Arizona. So the experiment was in uh, in uh, near Tucson in a desert. Uh, and it was a, a, a sort of a glass house structure uh, on uh, some three acres, um, which contained, as you said, the oceans, a miniature ocean, a miniature a desert, a coral reef, a marshland, a jungle, so all the Earth's climate zones were represented in this small facility, and some of it had to be recreated in in, in some sort of artificial form, and some elements were 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 taken out of nature and placed there. Mm. And uh, you can imagine how difficult it it was to make these all these functional elements work together. Also, as as I said, the the idea of, of a spaceship life support system is that each element that goes in has a particular function; otherwise, it will go out. The optimal is the minimal, right? And mm-hmm. the minimal then means so. How small can you make such a system for for it to still reproduce and create the life support that these eight humans need, including their food, their waste uh, recycling, so complete material recycling in a way, in a a very efficient mode. And uh, so they went in in the the early 90s, 91, and came out 93. And in that sense, the the experiment succeeded, you you could say, because they did not starve or or die uh, in the experiment. Uh, But there was still a lot of ridicule about it. Uh, I can understand uh, because the, the the hopes were high flying. I mean, it was really like there were high hopes um, and it didn't work as planned, perhaps. Um, but it was still, from my perspective... As a historian of science and technology and also an environmental historian, it's, it's of course, a, a super interesting experiment um, that, that was cr- created. And, and the facility itself is extremely interesting. I, I visited. It's, uh, it's still there. It's still there. It's still there. Uh, you can visit. It's now run by uh, University of uh, Arizona or Arizona State. I don't remember. Um, for, yeah, in a way, uh, ecological experimentation. Um, And it's interesting in itself, I think. Uh, But the broader vision was, of course, then to, in some way, take this entire plant and put it on Mars. Mm. Um, And that didn't work out as we know, but it might in some years or decades. We know that there's already plans underway to um, go to Mars and also take a biosphere to Mars in like smaller incremental steps and build up something that would perhaps resemble the Biosphere 2. So yeah. Biosphere 1 is the Earth. Yes. Biosphere 2 is the sort of the miniaturized form that was then built in the 80s and tested in the 90s.
0: So 3 might be on Mars.
2: Biosphere 3. <laughs> the Russians also experimented with uh, such um, small self-sustaining systems. And they also... they actually called their own little machines BIOS for oh. life, yes. right? BIOS 3. So, in a way, it's already taken up BIOS uh, 3. <laughs>
0: All right.
2: We'll find a number
0: for it. That's not the hardest thing.
2: Uh, so, it's, uh, for me, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how, how these ideas mm. return um, after a long yeah, silence, in mm. a way, on that front yes right Uh, there was no money there was not really interest to to do these kind of large-scale endeavors and now it's private companies that take over where the states left in a way Uh, nasa left Uh, and now they're building these partnerships and uh, as you said elon musk is uh, in a way it's on his way but so are other private endeavors Mm. that are now getting ready um, well, now
0: the technology has sort of caught up with the ideas in some ways. It's easier to do these things now.
2: I think not really. Really? <laughs> um, well, perhaps one could build... A uh, a glasshouse environment on another planet we've seen it in that movie the martian yes, right yes. not so very long ago 2015 right i was really interested to see uh, how he made a life for himself uh, on these few potatoes <laughs> and uh, it's the and human perhaps, waste idea the, yeah the, the, right that so this is the spaceship idea it's complete material recycling that was there in the right. 60s it's as sustainability well. This would be a proto-sustainability, sustain a system, a self sustained system, right? Mm. Uh, and uh, and that kind of like subsistence or sufficiency idea of 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 existence, maintaining uh, your your system uh, in in relation to to your environmental system, and this is exactly what we see in the in the film, uh, which, also, of course, also is a, is a book uh, first. Right. So the, the, the novel was there earlier. So we, we see that technology and can somehow envision that it's not going to be long until we see it in practice. But then there's other problems that, of course, we haven't solved, like the radiation problem. I mean, that, that, but that wasn't part of the Biosphere 2 idea either. Mm. right? In Tucson, Arizona, they had other problems uh, that they needed to take care of. Uh, but radiation, I mean... Um, nuclear radiation really toxic radiation wasn't part of it
1: that was associate professor sabina Heather. on the next episode of the sphere podcast sabina will discuss how the spaceship earth metaphor has in a sense re-emerged with earth system thinking and the concept of the anthropocy and she'll also reveal which three science fiction films have meant the most for her work
0: yeah no spoilers but here's a clue all three are from the 1970s And all three films concern radical programs aimed at solving dystopian catastrophes. So be sure to listen in to Sphere next time to find out what those films are. See you then. Sphere is supported by the European Research Council under the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme.